Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold. This is episode 45 for the November 1st issue of JBJS. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal, and my co-host... Antonia Chen, a Adult Reconstruction Deputy Editor. We are, as I mentioned, covering the November 1st issue, uh, 2023, for the Journal Bone and Joint Surgery. As always, the opinions you hear, the insights, the erudition, they are our, our own and not those of the other members of the editorial board, editor-in-chief, constituent editors of the other subsidiary journals, the Board of Trustees, the Peanut Gallery, so on and so forth. This episode is brought to you by the Miller Review Course, and uh, it is that time where you need to start thinking about your preparation for what comes next, uh, whether you're already a seasoned individual or someone who's anticipating taking part one of the ABOS examination, it's never a wrong time to get some CME and get up to speed on in a great uh, setting in uh, beautiful uh, Colorado, several days to really catch up on everything, the latest and greatest and, and everything you need to know to have uh, be well situated for uh, your um, intellectual future in the orthopedic space. Also, as a heads up, we are celebrating the 10-year anniversary of publishing JBGS Reviews this month. Please check out JBGS Reviews. And also, there's a collection of the top 10 reviews articles over the past 10 years, plus an editorial by the editor of that journal, Dr. Einhorn. So a great native New Yorker and a former denizen of Boston. It's like we're leading and and for a very brief moment, a uh, surprise uh, cameo role in uh, your case, which ended up getting cut. It ended up getting cut. So maybe that'll show up in the uh, blooper reel at the end of the year. Thanks for showing up, Tom. We appreciate it. Always glad to see you. See what he has to say uh, about the uh, 10 years of review articles and JBGS reviews. Let's get into it with the top of the pile. We're talking about applications of extended reality in orthopedic surgery by Nazal, and then just bones by Burton, which we, is per- perfectly free. That's yeah, what we, we do. do. <laughs> I, I can't tell you any more about it than it's just it's just bones. Permanently uh, free bones too. Yeah, use your use your own imagination about you know. But if you, if you're curious, check out the article. It's permanently free, so you don't you don't have to use your imagination. You can read it. Then there's the iodine allergy and the orthopedic patient by Fraval. And women are underrepresented among principal investigators of hip and knee arthroplasty clinical trials in the United States by Silvestre. And then we have patient preferences and perceptions of provider diversity in orthopedic surgery by Chen and an obituary for Frank C. Wilson, MD, 1929 to 2023 by Sanders. That also is permanently free. We'll then move into the headlines. Uh, Mine is the effect of surgeon volume on revision for periprosthetic joint infection and analysis of 602,919 
primary total knee arthroplasties. This is uh, by Vaotua and colleagues. It comes from Australia. It's work that's done with the Australian Orthopedic Association National Joint Replacement Registry. Uh, these authors were interested in looking at surgeon volume. This is a topic that we have covered uh, in a couple of different ways over the two years that we've been doing this. Can you believe we've been doing it for two years already? Seems like, Let's do it. Seems like it was the first time we were introducing Kaiser Soze just yesterday. <laughs> and, and here we are, uh, 45 uh, episodes into it. But um, yeah, so we, we've, we've touched on the surgeon volume piece, which is an important area of health services research and something that has been covered in a number of different ways. They're interested in looking at surgeon volume for joint infection. They have a large number of patient substrate, close to 603,000 cases. They have uh, a lot of surgeons because it's a national registry. They have quite extensive follow-up including you know being able to survey patients for periods between 1 and, and 19 years these include patients who underwent joint replacement from September 1st 1999 to December 31st 2020 i would wager in 1999 you were in high school i am not that young thank goodness <laughs> <laughs> i had already graduated high school but i was in college Oh, <laughs> uh, you were attending the Skull and Bones uh, meetings at the time. It was very secretive, um, okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> so they they took kind of a, a, a very uh, standard approach, which is they break the volume down by quintile, uh, which is less than 25, 25 to 49, 50 to 74, 75 to 99, or greater than, than, than 100. So th they're the quintiles. That's, you know... Uh, one of the problems with these types of studies is that they make all sorts of different cutoffs um, based on, sometimes it's based on the total number of uh, surgeons, you know, the volume that they have or the, the number of surgeons that they have even. Um, this is, you know, I'm not sure that there's much, you know, what's the difference between 99 and 100 surgeries or or 24 and 25 surgeries or 49 and 50 surgeries. I'm not sure that these numbers have like exact values. Um, and yeah. that may also speak to some of the findings. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Like in the States, we use greater than 50 joints as like a high volume, you know, and some right. studies over 200, you know, so it's very hard. It's a kind of subjective number to your point. So I, I wouldn't invest much in the actual number. I think it's more doing a lot, doing a little if you're, you know, some of these individuals who are doing less than 24, and I think you brought up before, like the average American orthopedic surgeon probably does a lot less total joints than you think. Um, I think you've thrown out the number on previous uh, broadcasts. I don't want to get it wrong. So, but most of the majority of people yeah. under uh, who do total joint replacements um, do less than 50 a year. That also allowed me to get some coffee for some extra caffeine boost <laughs> to the oh, brain. So that was strategic. Yeah, so the the numbers here I wouldn't invest in too much, but at the same time they have a very high statistical power, and they were able to make some definitions uh, in terms of showing showing an association for those who uh, were high volume surgeons. Their sort of cumulative revision rate was zero point four percent at one year and one point five percent at nineteen years. This is significantly different in some respects from the low volume individuals. 
So you can just leave it at, at that. But when you drill into the weeds, so the one-year revision rate for the high volume was 0.4%. The low volume revision rate was 0.6%, just a 0.2 percentage point difference. If you look at the confidence intervals, they do not overlap, but the upper bound of the high volume is 0.4 and the lower bound of the low volume is 0.5. So they're kind of right, they're abutting, even though they're not overlapping. And that's a clinical versus statistical significance. Yeah, because it's not so very compelling. I mean, we're talking about, so for the individual who does over a hundred a year, and there's going to be a, a large range beyond that, right? There, there could be some folks who are doing 200 a year, you know, for some of these centers where they're doing like eight a day or something going between rooms and like 16 a week, like, <laughs> you know, you can get some astronomical numbers pretty quickly, but you know, in that group that's really doing a lot versus not even the in-between ones, the ones that are just doing 24 or less, it's 0.2 percentage point difference between those those two. And then at the upper bound, it's 2% or 2.1% for the low volume and 1.5%. So a 0.6 percentage point difference, but the confidence intervals do overlap. So even with 603,000 total joints at risk and 5,300 revised because of infection, you're not able to quantify that that's actually meaningfully different. I think what this says is that um, there's probably a lot more that drives the risk of infection than volume. Volume is not the main the main driver. We last October actually we were discussing where like the Cleveland Clinic did its breakdown just amongst Cleveland Clinic surgeons about like their high and low volume and we talked about it in the context of like basketball players and LeBron James and you know the 13th guy in the NBA could still like totally destroy the average individual even though they're not getting any playing time you know as compared to LeBron James. I think that total knee arthroplasty if I wanted to be, you know, like the stereotypical spine guy, I could be like, it's such a simple procedure that like, you don't actually have to be very good at doing it. Like, like you're but that's not what I'm definitely not going there. So don't take it that way. In a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Those who are doing the procedure are trained well enough that the, the margins are not made in the volume. Those who are doing it a lot are going to have a lot more risk. Those who don't do it too much are not going to have as much risk, just, you know, we're just talking about the number of, of hits against the, the procedure, the number of chances against the procedure. The more you do, you know, the more you play the lotto, the better your chances to win. But overall, your chances are still pretty small, right? So when we're talking about revision for an infection, which is fortunately not a very common event, what we're seeing here is that, you know, volume does not change. You know, your your experiential volume doesn't change very much. That's not their narrative. They say uh, high volume surgeons have lower rates of revision for infection, which is true. <laughs> um, but uh, then they said, you know, a better understanding of how surgical volume contributes to decreasing this complication is important and requires in-depth study. That part I don't really get because it's been studied a lot already. And I think that you can explain it a lot of ways. Like the the high volume surgeons may actually be better at selecting candidates for surgery. Um, they can work faster. They're more facile that way uh, with the technical aspects of the procedure. But I think what we're seeing here is that this is ultimately when you look at the actual numbers beyond the narrative, this is not 
volume is not the driver behind reducing the infection, at least in Australia, within the individuals who perform total joints in Australia. That's what I that's what I have to say about that. Completely agree with you on that one. There's yeah, not much more to add to that. You know, patient selection really is the key factor there, I would say. And again, and breaking it down by certain numbers, you know, saying like lowest volume group is less than 25. And then there were all these like different comparisons. Like, for example, they said there's a bunch of differences between greater than 100 and less. But from one year onward, there's no difference in the risk of revision for infection compared with high volume surgeons for the lowest volume group or the 75 to 99 group, right? So, and then the hard part for me is patella resurfacing. I'm not quite sure what that has to do with infection rate per se, unless it's just a little bit more time potentially. Um, same thing with the results when patella wasn't resurfaced, like volume shouldn't make a difference in infection rate with regards to resurfacing and the type of polyethylene, you know, as opposed to highly cross-linked versus not highly cross-linked also probably shouldn't make a difference. But I feel like it's a little bit more of a slight fishing expedition, right? They're finding that males in less than 65-year-old different made a difference in terms of infection. But again, patient characteristics, selection, exactly as you're saying. As yeah. opposed to things. Let's hear about the uh, bone cement fumes from an eminent research group, the preeminent thought leaders in the total joint arthroplasty space. You I know, think. I choose an arthroplasty one, and this one happens to be mine. So I'll first, as a first disclosure, that this is my article working with Matt Jamison, who is our research assistant and um, currently a, a resident down at MUSC. Fantastic guy. And what a group of us did is we wanted to compare the uh, methamethacrate levels and the vapors emitted across different systems. We've all been in a case before where they crack open the vial, the MMA vapors come out, and everyone goes like, is that safe or not safe? And most of the time people are like, well, if you're pregnant, that's probably not safe. And then some studies have shown it's safe, it's no problem at all. But in general, the OSHA guidelines, so they set up all the occupational hazards of noise, all sorts of stuff like that throughout every sort of work setting, says that anything greater than 100 parts per million is not good for your health. So that's something to think about. So this is looking at five commercially available mixing systems across two operative settings. So the first setting was an operating room with laminar airflow, and the other one didn't have laminar airflow, basically is what it came down to as the two different settings. And they prepared, and we used a sawbone, so we were doing a cemented hip, essentially, is what we did. We took the sawbones, the proximal femur, and then we cracked open the vials, mixed it all up, and then put it into this cemented femur. There were five phases that we used. So the first was unpacking the mixing system and cement, and then you broke the ampule, and that's when the fumes started to come out. There was the actual mixing process, that was phase three. And then preparation of the cartridge, meaning the mixing up and down, whether it be a gun, whether it be a bowl, whichever sort of cartridge it was. And finally, cement extrusion and application. So where you actually take either the gun or the bowl and you actually put the cement down the canal. And then we just put a plug in there to pretend to act as an implant. And then there are five different systems. The first system was a bowl mixer. The second, third, and fourth one were different types of gun mixers. And the final one was an all-in-one closed fixation system that goes into a gun. Those are the five different ones. And those numbers one through five and phase one through five are basically what's reported in the results. Of note, this is a sponsored study. So take that with a grain of salt. They did sponsor um, the uh, system that was number five. The this high- is how you bought your private jet? Uh, two private jets, please. <laughs> <laughs> right. the private jets long before you did the study. <laughs> We're in academic medicine, my friend. <laughs> there are no private jets. 
So the highest fumes were in the conventional ventilation groups. The ones without laminate airflow, not surprisingly, actually had the highest levels of fumes. And interestingly, they stayed for a period of time. So I was stuck with the conventional fume one. I mixed all of them for the entire day in the conventional system. And um, I got exposed to a lot of MMA that day, to put it mildly. It took a long time to clear out in between each mixing system. Um, So it really was the highest fumes, and the data showed that in the conventional system. System three was the only one that exhibited a phase with significantly higher concentration in the laminar flow settings and conventional flow uh, conventional settings, which occurred in phase two. And I note that because that's the only exception to the laminar flow versus conventional flow one. Uh, in general, bowl mixing had the highest MA vapors, especially in phase four, which makes a lot of sense because you're mixing it, opening it up, and you actually have to transfer it versus the gun systems actually stay within it. The closed system, number five, had the lowest overall emissions for all five phases, especially in the conventional setting, which again makes sense because all one system, you break it, it all stays in within the ampule setting, and then the, the canister for the gun is there as well too. In the laminar airflow system, system three had significantly higher MMA concentrations than all the other systems during phase one and phase two, so opening it up and getting it ready. After all, after the first two phases, all the five systems did perform pretty similarly, and again, these had lower fumes than the conventional ones. Looking specifically at occupational risk, this is the area that kind of got us got me actually interested in this research area um, because there are a lot of occupational hazards that do happen to orthopedic surgeons. And again, noise, fluids, all sorts of exposures. And this is for uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, in the conventional setting, systems one, two, and four did exceed the 100 parts per million limit for a longer duration than systems three and five. In the laminar flow setting, system three surpassed the 100 parts per million limit for a mean amount of time greater than all the other systems. In all trials, in all trials of four and five in the laminar flow setting, fume levels never exceeded 100 parts per minute. So it is a little hard to interpret this data. We randomly did different systems at different time. We tried to keep it really tight to have three people do these. I did all the conventional flow ones. Two other individuals did the laminar flow ones. Um, and you can see the data have some spike in ebbs and flows that depends on the cracking and things like that. But in general, what the trend is saying, one, it's important to watch out for MMA uh, vapors. If you're concerned about it, having a con- consistently fully closed system is nice. Um, And you want to take this in consideration for people who either are cognizant of it or are pregnant or want to be careful about exposure to these fumes. Who did the laminar flow ones? Uh, I had two of my uh, scrub techs actually do it. They we took a whole day Saturday. We sat there literally from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night and did the study. It was a long day. Wow. Yeah. Really, you know, team effort. (laughs) It really was. They were great. And have yeah, nurses you, didn't put, you didn't put them on your uh, author list, though. And they didn't want to be on the author list, but the nurse who was there, Mary Catherine yeah. West, was mm-hmm. on there, and she was she was phenomenal in this. So she helped orchestrate this with me, and the two of us did this together. She was there all day with me, and we uh, she acted as a circulator throughout that laminar flow one, and so it was a really good teamwork. Very cool, interesting work. The clinical relevance, I think, says you know says says it all. I think we take a lot of things for granted and assume just you know it's naturally safe if you're you know in in the room doing it it's been approved it's safe it's okay we i think we take a lot of that for granted so taking the time to show that um and measure it in a meaningful way is, is important i agree so we're not on hold no definitely not <laughs> all right all right but when discussing things that may be on hold we're going to now move into the your case is on hold featurette which is hemiarthroplasty versus total hip arthroplasty for femoral neck fracture in elderly patients. 
12-month risk of revision and dislocation in an instrumental variable analysis of Medicare data. So as it says in the title, this is a study that's using Medicare data, and they performed an instrumental variable analysis, which is a type of causal inference testing. More people are familiar with propensity score matching or inverse probability weighting or things like that. But this is another another technique for trying to reduce confounding by indication. These authors used um, Medicare data from 2017 to 2019 to explore how hemiarthroplasty versus total hip arthroplasty influences the risk of revision and dislocation in femoral neck fractures. Hasn't this question been answered already? This has definitely been addressed on multiple different planes. I think the avenue that they tried to do so potentially was looking at just at Medicare data. Not quite sure if that's the their viewpoint of their angle of saying a select group of patients greater than 65 years old. I think their angle was the instrumental variable analysis. I think that's the real like sort of, you know, this is a different way, but just like we've talked about, it's not the it's not the the technical approach that should drive the the study. It's not oh we did machine learning or oh we did propensity score matching or oh we did instrumental variable analysis or oh we did convoluted neural networks. It's the fundamental question and how the technique helps uh, unpack that question and then how the findings as presented now either create a new landscape, a new territory is being explored, new information is being generated. If you're doing the, you know, not the, the, the technique du jour, the a la mode, the in the style of our, you know, current times, um, to use the parlance of our times, and you come up with the same finding or the same information, I, I don't know how, how useful that, that really is. So I, I thought that, you know, if you want to see how to do an instrumental variable analysis, they do really do a good job in the methods of, of laying it out for you. So it's a nice primer for those who are interested in that technique or potentially applying it. They explain how instrumental variables are in what conditions they are effective. Um, they were informed by prior studies and their instruments are the annual overall volume of total hips at the surgeon's practicing facility, the annual proportion of total hips at the surgeon's practicing facility that were performed for fracture, and the annual proportion of femoral neck fracture cases at the surgeon's facility treated with hemiarthroplasty. Um, you know, the question is, does that really actually effectively address the confounding by by indication or the selection or an indication bias. Uh, maybe it does. Uh, you know, I think different people will have differing opinions, differing minds will opine differently. The work was supported by uh, an R01 NIH grant. I'm not sure if this was the primary question for that or if this was secondary work that came out of it, but they have 62,000 uh, Medicare patients who met the inclusion criteria. As expected, the overwhelming majority of those, 83 plus percent, received hemiarthroplasty. There are only going to be specific circumstances in which an individual is going to be selected for total hip arthroplasty. And whether their instrument effectively accounts for that, I, I, you, I don't think you can tell that just purely based on the data constructs that are, are presented. You either have to accept that, yes, they're, yes it does, or, or no, uh, you don't think it does. Either way, I think there's there's good face validity for the findings because 
had you said, someone's going to do a study of hemiarthroplasty versus total hip arthroplasty for femoral neck fracture in the elderly, based on what you, meaning me, know about this cohort of patients, what would you predict the outcomes would be? And I would have said that the hemiarthroplasty patients have a really low risk of dislocation, and the total hip arthroplasty patients have probably a higher risk of dislocation, but not really that high. And um, amazing. (laughs) And that they're probably not going to be significant differences in terms of revision, primarily because the hemiarthroplasty patients are low demand. And if things things really have to go south for you to want to revise those as the resident subject matter expert in all things joint replacement. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're correct. You know, it's one of those things where you're, you hit the nail. Basically, the like the, the, the implant has to come out and do like an exorcist, like 360 sort of thing and now be pointing the other way or something like that. It literally has to be in the other joint <laughs> at that point in time. For the hemiarthroplasty revision to get on the on the books. Yeah. And and obviously there's a lower there's a lower threshold for 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 total hips and, and a lot more has to go right to keep the total hip implant functional. Um, but those who do total hips for these types of fractures are probably good at doing total hips because it's easier to do a hemiarthroplasty. Yeah, it definitely is. So. A lot less technical demand. It's less time. It's uh, everything is lower. So those who choose to do a total hip are probably already good at doing total hips. Hence, you don't have significant differences in the revision rate. I don't think that this uh, instrumental variable analysis that they did really can unpack the selection and indication bias around revision. This is a, addressing the initial decision. And then what happens downstream after that is, is not known. So we're, we're talking about 2.9% in the total hip group versus 1.9%. That's that's the, the dislocation uh, at 12 months. So 3% versus 2%. And it was significantly different, but they recognized this is probably not clinically important, a one percentage point difference, especially when you're talking about the individuals in the total hip group are probably at a much higher functional level to even qualify for for that uh, choice of implant to treat their fractures as opposed to the hemiarthroplasty. Um, There's nothing to put on hold methods-wise here. The the background, the methods, the results, they, they all follow the best practices. I think the, you know, whether this the need for this work is particularly compelling, I think that can probably go. That's the part of this that I put on hold. That's fair. And, and it doesn't give us the information that we need. For example, as you said, even if it's indications, we don't know if there's preoperative arthritis or what was their activity level before surgery and things like that. So you just can't get that from the database, fortunately. All right. That study did have an infographic and is permanently free. So if you're a visual learner or you don't want to take our word for it, you definitely uh, should check that out. Now on to our honorable mentions. Public insurance and single guardian households are associated with diagnostic delay in slip capital femoral epiphysis by Smith and colleagues. This is 30 days free, and there is a comment. This is interesting work in the pediatric space conducted by uh, our colleagues across the street at Boston Children's Hospital. They reviewed medical records of individuals who underwent uh, surgical fixation for SCIFI between 2002 and 2021. Um, they're looking at delays in diagnoses, and, the, and they did find some, some definite concerning findings. 37% of patients uh, with slipped capital femoral epiphysis presented with delay, and those individuals um, who were in single guardian households or on public insurance were found to have significant associations. They call it independent risk factors. 
I think that's a little bit of an older term that you know suggests more causation um, than you can define from from a work like this. But uh, they're definitely flags for diagnostic delay, and um, they encourage interventions to reduce delay, focusing on publicly insured patients and those from single guardian households to improve care across the board. Interestingly, uh, Dr. Candace Feldman is the third author on this. She's actually from the, the Brigham. She was uh, roommates in college with uh, one of my wife and I best friends uh, in El Paso. Small, Small world, I love it. And Dr. Jeff Katz is also on this paper, who is uh, one of the methodology editors at GBGS as well. Then we have continued stabilization of a cementless 3D printed total knee arthroplasty, five-year results of a randomized controlled trial using radio stereometric analysis. This is by uh, Vanderlelli, Vanderlelli Industries. Vanderlelli and colleagues, uh, this is permanently free. Um, this work comes out of the Netherlands and involves 72 patients randomized to cementless 3D printed triathlon titanium cruciate retaining total knee or cemented triathlon cruciate retaining implants. They're looking at implant migration and found no significant difference in migration at five years between the two components. Uh, this is a therapeutic level one study. Um, lots of additional interesting details for those working in the total joint space. It is randomized controlled trial. Um, definitely uh, check that out um, if you have the time and the interest. And then lastly, we have uh, Verhagen and colleagues, uh, acetabular sector angles and asymptomatic and dysplastic hips, defining dysplasia and thresholds to guide management. There is a visual summary for this. This is a, a level three study uh, on patients with dysplasia. They have um, a cross-sectional control group of 51 patients, 102 hips uh, in total there, and then a study group of 66 patients and 72 hips, measuring this acetabular sector angle, and ultimately concluding it is a reliable tool to help identify focal acetabular deficiency with high accuracy. Really good work in this issue of the journal, very interesting items. Do take the time to check that out, and while you're at it, if you get the chance, please uh, like and subscribe, uh, get the notification bell so that you can hear about every issue that comes out, which is twice a month. So maybe, you know, it's sort of the uh, Tuesday before the first issue drops. In this case, this podcast is dropping on Halloween for the November 1st issue. Nonetheless, for those who have uh, not yet subscribed, please do so uh, and continue to listen. Give us a five-star rating if you can. For those who did not like what they hear on this episode, thanks for sticking with us this long and come back again. Maybe you'll like uh, the next, uh, what, what we have to say on the next issue or check the back issues. Maybe you like those better as well. Uh, either way, we're about out of time here. We'll try to do better next time. Hopefully where you are, your cases are all on green, but uh, right here, our cases are still on hold. <laughs>